0: Welcome to the Charvak podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. All right, today it's time to have that monthly discussion with Abhijit. And today's topic is the end of Hinduism. Abhijit has selected this title himself, so all the abuses should be directed towards Abhijit and not me. So, with that wonderful introduction, I will hand it over to Abhijit.
1: Thank you. So I'll tell you why I chose this topic. See, there's a um, quote by Mark Twain. Uh, He said, history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. And I think it's very important that we learn lessons from history, because mostly what happens is in India, we never do anthropological or sociological histories of other parts of the world. We're too obsessed with ourselves. Uh, we aren't able to see when other people's experiences affect us or how they affect us or why they affect us. I mean, even with our own history, we're so trashy, okay? We keep getting told horses, horses, horses. We're never told why the horses, right? So uh, uh, why the horses defeated us or why the Turks defeated us. So when you have a country that doesn't ask the right questions, it is like a doctor who can't diagnose your disease, you're going to die. So I am going to do what Mark Twain suggested, which is tickle out the rhymes in history. And uh, unfortunately, it doesn't bode very well for you. So I chose this title deliberately. Because based on a lot of what I'm seeing, uh, it is pretty much I think the 21st century will be the century in which Hindus become a minority in their own country um and from there the process will be irreversible where you may not even exist uh, except in you know some kind of cults like um i don't know vika or whatever so let's go into why and i specifically did this because i didn't want to do that usual crap about you know uh, oh the turks had sex slaves Oh, the Turks had slave soldiers. Oh, they're doing love jihad. Oh, statistics. Nobody produces statistics, right? So this is all properly sourced and everything. And I wanted to show you, key why what is happening and why it's happening. Because in fact, what you find is that the forces of Hindutva far from retarding the process are actually help accelerating it. Okay. Specifically the BJP. So... Let's start with the philosophy first. Uh, and I want to stress before I start that everything that I tell you is multi-causal. Nothing is ever monocausal. Uh One reason is usually, you know, it's the straw that broke the camel's back. But remember, that is just one straw. There had to be a whole host of, um, a whole load of other bales of straw, which caused the camel's back to weaken so that this one thing broke it. So everything is monocausal. So I'm going to try to bring out the complexity, the nuance of it. And I thought the best way of doing it was the Eastern Roman Empire, right? That is to say, Greece, Anatolia, the Levant, which is uh, Syria, uh, 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 Lebanon, uh, Israel, and Egypt. Uh, Because that is a very, very good measure, because it first Christianized And then it Islamized. And it's very important to see why all of this happened, to understand why this is going to happen to you now, and why it did not happen to you prior to 1947. Okay, So the roots of this were laid in 1947, which I'll come to at the end. Now, philosophically, if you look at it, monotheism has traditionally been intolerant. OK, we don't need to uh, uh, explain this uh, uh, particularly uh, uh, greatly because you look at the empirical examples. The ve- world's first known example of monotheism is the pharaoh Akhen Amun, who changes his name to Akhenaten uh, and e- e- essentially uh, is uh, changes a henotheistic Egypt. Uh, well henotheism uh, is where you have several gods but one is most prominent so for example in hinduism you would say shiva and vishnu and durga are the most worshipped but you also worship other gods like uh, brahma here surya here a few temples here and there there's a lakshmi temple saraswati temple etc etc so that is henotheism now aten was the uh, uh, During his father's reign, he promoted it as henotheism, which is Aten is the most important of a whole set of gods. But the moment he comes to power, he then abolishes the other gods and makes it monotheistic. And his persecution of all these other uh, gods, the cults of all the other gods, the temples of all the other gods becomes absolutely murderous. Okay, and this kind of religious bigotry, it destroys the economy. And you see this consistently. So you look at Hezekiah. Hezekiah is the man who makes Judaism monotheistic. Okay, before that, if you look at Judaism, there, there are a lot of archaeological evidence to show you that it wasn't as monotheistic as the Bible would have you believe. Hezekiah essentially rewrites the Bible extremely violent man if you don't subscribe to his new monotheism you get killed uh, whatever whatever and he centralizes the place of worship at jerusalem so in the places where he writes about where he's rewritten the bible you can see that violent strain come about for example the story of moses We now know that Israelis were completely native to Israel. They did not come from Egypt. They were never held in slavery in Egypt. And they certainly didn't do some exodus into uh, uh, Israel. All right. They've always, archaeologically, you can prove that they've been there for a very long time. Uh, However, when he creates this story, and it was created very specifically in a context where Israel's greatest adversary was Egypt. So Egypt had to be shown as the enemy. So this entire story is concocted out of thin air. And what happens is that in the story of Moses, you look at when the Jews are finally brought to the Sinai and adopt uh, 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 a monotheism. There is that very important episode with Aaron, where Aaron, who is Moses' actual birth brother, uh, he constructs the golden calf. And uh, when Moses comes down from the mountain and he sees that this golden calf has been constructed, uh, he's absolutely furious with the people for idolatry and things. And he destroys the golden calf and he orders everybody who worshipped it to be killed. Okay, and this is pretty much what Hezekiah is doing. He's creating his one God. He's justifying it, saying that this is what our ancestor Moses did. And from this point on, uh, this is what is going to happen to anybody who doesn't believe in this one God, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you have the example of Akhenaten, you have the example of Hezekiah doing it and you know postulating it, and I'm not going to go into it. But there is a very important distinction of what is happening with monotheism of the Akhenaten and Hezekiah kind, and the polytheism of the ancient world. Because remember, the uh, uh, there were stages in the evolution of religion. Uh, so, for example, in a Stone Age religion, you will have high levels of cannibalism and human sacrifice. When you know Columbus discovered America, uh, what happens is that you land up in a place which is essentially a Neolithic civilization. They did not work metal tools; they had stone tools. And you had significant levels of cannibalism. And you had industrial-scale human sacrifices happening. Uh, you then go into the Bronze Age, where you don't see cannibalism, but you do see human sacrifice. So you have uh, a, a lot of examples of that throughout Bronze Age, uh, Shang Dynasty China, Shia and Shang Dynasty China, uh, Mesopotamia. Even in Egypt, uh, there are there is evidence of it. Uh, And, you know, it's a standard pattern where all your retainers are killed and buried with you when the king dies and things like that. In the Iron Age, human sacrifice also goes out of vogue, mostly. Okay, it's not done anymore. Why this happens, we don't know. But what we do know is that there is a sophistication of thought emerging. Uh, Neolithic and presumably Paleolithic religion, we don't know when religion really begins, tends to be extremely shamanistic and crude. In the Bronze Age, it is kind of a negotiation where it is not shamanistic. It is adapted to a civilization or to a state. And in the Iron Age, you see much more mature thought emerging. Now, the Vedas is very unique in this, in that despite describing a Bronze Age civilization, it is extremely sophisticated in its thought process. You don't see that kind of sophistication emerge till the so-called first axial age with Zoroaster and people like that, uh, which is a product of the Iron Age, firmly in the Iron Age, right? You also look at the caliber and the state capacity of Iron Age empires. They are far, far greater than the empires that they replaced. So this is a very standardized pattern that seems to emerge. Now, I'm not suggesting causality. I'm just showing you that there is some kind of a correlation out here. Very surprisingly, the Greek religion and the Roman religion, they don't go in this direction of greater sophistication. Why? Because it has to do with the evolution of their religions. There, in the Greek and Roman world, when you die, you don't go to heaven or hell, as the case may be. You are not reborn based on your good deeds. You go to a gray netherworld that is called Hades, And people remember you on earth by your uh, actions and deeds. So you are urged to be valorous so that people talk about you. And the more they talk about you, the better that is for you. So be remembered in this life. But there is no connection between you being good and a reward for it in the afterlife. Yet at the same time, Buddhism and Hinduism have already developed a system of karma wherein you are punished or rewarded based on your deeds in this life. Okay, so there there is a huge diversion in what what happens in the uh, Iron Age out here, that the Eastern religions, the Eastern Axial religions, Buddhism and Hinduism, develop a karmic principle. The Western uh, Old Bronze Age religions, they have not been affected by the Axial Age so far. Uh, They develop a... uh, um, Uh, they don't really develop in the sense of uh, intellectual thought. They continue the shamanistic practice where the sophistication comes about is the philosophy because uh, they understand that religion is primarily a function of state. Religion is a political animal and it needs to be controlled by the political elites. They understand this extremely well now. Because we invent karma and a system of good and bad actions leading to reward or punishment. You don't diverge philosophy from theology. They remain the same. Your philosophy, theology and things, your mythology, philosophy, theology remain the same. In the West, with Rome and Greece, what happens is you never develop a theology. You retain your shamanistic faith, but the Iron Age sophistication is brought out in terms of philosophy. And this is where Western philosophy shines, because there is no reward for good and bad. And therefore, you have to develop a philosophical system so that people act in a good way. Right. So this was the weakness of the Western pagan religions, this mythology and philosophy, but not having a theology, Whereas Hinduism and Buddhism develop a theology. Now, understand this. This is the background. I'm not going to repeat it again. You need to keep this at the back of your mind because this is the huge strength of Hinduism. It became a huge weakness for Rome later on. Right. The issue, of course, is that when you view religion as a political animal, uh, you, you, you use it as a political tool to absorb different parts of your empire. So you have Spanish gods coming in. You have Egyptian gods coming in. You have Gaulish gods coming in. When the need arises, when you find a priestly cult is too powerful or you uh, they're challenging your authority, you try to extinguish it. So, for example, the Romans wiped out the Gauls, even though. So why did they absorb the Greek religion and the Egyptian religion? But why did they wipe out Gaulish polytheism? Because the uh, Druids were a very potent political threat to them. So they did it largely for political grounds. You look at the Jews, they were never completely wiped out. They used to keep rising up in rebellion after rebellion after rebellion. And yet the vast majority of them consistently resettled in the Roman Empire. And the persecutions were always sporadic. They were never consistent. You rebel, you get punished. After a few years, you get forgiven. And that's about it. Right. Uh, The memories are short. And what happens is because you're absorbing all these gods, much like Hinduism does has done for the last few thousand years, you build a syncretic culture. There is no single cult. There is no single identity to such an extent that by about 100 to 150 AD, the primary god of the Roman religions becomes Mithras, who Mitra, my name, uh, who is the main god of your arch enemy, the Parthians and the Persians. Okay, so it was that open in terms of absorbing new thoughts and new religion and things like that. The problem was the Mithrates, they used to be uh, very, uh, you know, secretive and closeted. They were their own cult. Then there were the Venusian cults and the Aphrodite cults and all of that. So they never saw eye to eye with each other. They never had a sense that we are all one. On the one hand, they felt we all worship the same God, but they never had what... uh, uh, Huntington calls substance and salience you are not us and you are us and this is very important in terms of how they deal with Christians and Jews okay because if you look at Christianity traditionally what is it it's basically Judaism plus the eating of pork okay and that that's something very something very deliberate that uh, Saint uh, uh, Paul or Peter, I forget now. Uh, they do that very deliberately. That, that, that they divorce the Jewish uh, eating norms from uh, 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 the theology. Now we have to understand now what is happening. Uh, anyway, I'll come to Christianity later. So you you don't have this sense. Oh, the Jews have rebelled. It's a bit like the worshippers of Mithras have rebelled. Therefore, we're going to crush them now. We're going to crucify 5,000 of them and uske baad hum chhod denge because then they'll come back to the fold and whatever. What the Romans can't understand is, while everybody in every part of the empire is worshipping the gods, the senate-proclaimed gods, why are the Jews refusing to worship the senate-proclaimed gods? We accept your god. Why don't you accept our god? And this is why you, the Roman persecution even of Christians was nothing compared to the pagan persecution by Christian Romans later on, right? Which is why you can have all this atrocity literature, but it, it was very common for that time. Uh, but it wasn't a consistent, persistent persecution that happened out there. Now, what happens out here is that you pretty much have this new version of Judaism come about called Christianity. Uh, I'm not going to go into the origins of Christianity, but it's just really important to understand what Christianity is doing at this point of time. In the Roman religion, your rewards, your wealth, whatever, Is dependent on your personal relationship with God. So it's a lot like your Bhakti culture. It is how you honor the gods, how you sacrifice to the gods, and things like that. In Judaism, uh, they have already developed this concept of heaven or hell. And what is going to, you are not just going to be rewarded in this life, you are also going to be rewarded in the afterlife. There you can, in Roman religion, you can blame other gods when you go wrong. So, for example, my business went bankrupt. Oh, I didn't appease, uh, I don't know, Bacchus. Uh, I didn't give him his wine quota. Therefore, he destroyed my business. Here, it's very dogmatic belief. And out of this, we don't exactly understand why, except like I showed you correlation, Hezekiah and Akhenaten. These are people who are willing to die for their beliefs because they dogmatically only have one God. So if you something bad has happened to you, you don't have another God to turn to. This is one of the explanations for why they turn so uh, uh why they're willing to die for their beliefs, that fanaticism. But tell me, how many Romans or Greeks do you know that were willing to die for their beliefs? None. Just like most Hindus aren't willing to die for their beliefs. And this is something Ibn Battuta commented on. Very curiously, he says, the Hindus are very strange. They're not willing to die for their beliefs. And it was the exact same with the Romans and the Greeks at that, and the pagan Egyptians at that point of time. And notice that word pagan. It has a very important uh, uh, connotation I'll come to. Now, Christianity does something very strange. It appeals to suffering and poverty. The message is a povertarian message. Suffering is good. Suffering is how you get close to God. Poverty, no rich man, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to pass through uh, uh, the gates of heaven. That's that famous uh, biblical quote, right? So there's this great glorification of suffering and uh, 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 poverty that happens, which is very, very important in the Roman context. Why? Because when you call Rome an urban civilization, we know that only about 15 to 20 percent, maximum 20 percent of Rome was urban. You required an 80 percent rural population to support that 20 percent urban population. The other problem became that, uh, you know, Rome, uh, Italy, uh, Spain, the initial conquest, Italy and Spain, had extremely poor soil quality. You won't believe that if you go to Italy today, but it was true. You had a dry farm system. where you used to keep a piece of land fallow for two years in order to grow crops for one year. Right. So the breadbasket of the empire were its eastern colonies. Uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, Egypt was really Egypt. The, the province of Egypt was the breadbasket of the entire empire. Their surplus was so great that they could supply the entire empire. Uh, You know, when Egypt uh, in in the first, uh, uh, well, the second Roman civil war between uh, uh, Octavius and Antony, when Antony cuts off bread supplies, Rome is on the verge of famine. That's how bad it becomes. Right. Uh, Anatolia is different. So modern day Turkey, Anatolia is different. It provides you with certain minerals and things. Greece is different. It provides you with oil and certain other things. So these three were the cash cows of the economy. So the oppression was much greater in these three parts, Greece, Turkey and Egypt for different reasons, because remember, Turkey and uh, Greece don't have as good soil or as productive soil as Egypt does. So it's very different things that they're extracting, but they're extracting. And consequently, when you look at the statistics of population, you find that the in population percentage terms, the largest population of slaves is in Greece, Turkey, and Egypt. Over 30% of the population were slaves. And isn't it surprising that it is in these three provinces that Christianity spreads the most rapidly? Even though the Catholic Church would have you believe that it was St. Peter who came to Rome and then started the whole thing up in Rome, it was actually the fulcrum of the church, of the early church, was in Uh, The East, which is why, if you remember, there were five. The Pope by the Eastern Church, the Pope is only considered a primus, uh, primus inter pares, primus inter pares, first amongst equals. And what are these five equals? There is only one in the Western Roman Empire, the Bishop of Rome. The other four cities are in the Eastern Roman Empire, the Bishop of Constantinople, the Bishop of Antioch, the Bishop of Jerusalem and the Bishop of Alexandria. Okay, so four in the Eastern Empire, one in the Western Empire. Why that? That's showing you very, very early on that the East started Christianizing much, much more. The greater the misery, the more this attractiveness to this message of suffering and poverty and the glory of suffering and the glory of poverty and things like that. Now, this is how the low level capture begins, Okay, and by around the time of Constantine the Great converting to Christianity, we know that about, they say, 15 to 18 percent of the entire empire was Christian at this point. The problem is it looks at the entire empire. When you actually split it up into the eastern and the western empire, you find the eastern empire. It would have probably been, you know, about 30, 40 percent Christians by this time. Right. And despite all the propaganda hogwash you see and all those, uh, you know, uh, 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 skirt and sword flicks or whatever they're called, you know, uh, co this and uh, 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 10 commandments, not 10 commandments, co this and all those Roman things, the persecution was only sporadic. So what happens is in the eastern part, most resource extraction, greatest poverty, uh, or, or well, greatest inequality this message of powertarianism appeals the most. The second innovation that the church has done, very curiously for a religion that claims to oppose the powers that be, they turn completely Roman to the extent they absolve Caesar and the Roman Empire from the crucifixion of Christ. It is Pontius Pilate that crucifies Christ, but it is blamed on the Jews. And Pontius Pilate is this very righteous man who, you know, did not want to crucify Christ. And this is part of the entire propaganda narrative to start converting the empire. So I've shown you two strands right now. The economic strand, three strands right now. The philosophical strand, what, the fundamental philosophical weakness of not developing a theology to go with your mythology and this. You have the economic strand emerging. And then you have this whole... uh uh strand about how it becomes a friend of the empire in spite of being as we're meant to believe persecuted by the empire so you know the 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 romans really didn't give a shit about color race all this critical race theory nonsense absolute rubbish uh, you could become you could be an arab and become an emperor uh, helio gabalus el gabalus was an arab he was a native born arab who became emperor they worshipped a local arab pagan deity Okay, so this thing that somehow you had to be Roman, Latin, born in Italy didn't exist. So it was very open that way. Uh, Then what happens is uh, once Christianity comes to power, the entire system changes. Why? Now, Constantine converts to Christianity. he is portrayed as, you know, I'm not really interested. Ghar chalani do. I'm a very syncretic emperor. I allow everything to happen. Not true. Christ, uh, Constantine orders the first persecution of Roman paganism, even though so understand how secure he was. Sitting in the eastern part of the empire where he knows there is a significant population of Christians, that he can ban certain Roman pagan practices. He can order certain temples demolished, etc., etc., etc. happening out there, which shows you what is happening is that even though the Christians were in a simple majority, they were probably about 30, 35 percent, maximum, say, 40 percent of the population. The rest, the pagans did not identify themselves as I'm Roman religion. They would be like, I'm Venusian. I'm Aphroditic. I am Zeus worshiper. I am Mithras worshiper. I am Tutritis worshiper. Something like that or the other. So they never, at no point, do they actually see this as a clash of civilizations, though the Christians, right from the beginning, starting from Constantine himself, see this as a clash of civilizations, right? Then you come to, uh, there was a particularly philosophical emperor called Julian the Apostate who uh, uh, the grandson or the great grandson of Constantine I'm not too sure he actually gives up Christianity so you still understand that there were powerful pagan forces at work where he felt secure enough to give up Christianity and go back to the old Roman religion and he basically says What all the great philosophical, the philosopher emperors of Rome, Trajan, Hadrian, uh, Marcus Aurelius, Antonius Pius said, which is this, I don't understand this religion. It is so completely bereft of any philosophical value. And we realize that this is where the death knell was because they understood philosophy and mythology. They did not understand the power of theology. And that was Julian's great thing. So Julian restarts the Neoplatonic school of thought. All right. So he still doesn't get it. And this very scary parallel to today's India, where we still don't get what's happening at at the macro level. Anyway, he dies. His son is a Christian. And this is when the real persecution starts. So it is Theodosius, one of the successors of Julian. This is all happening in the 300s, right in the fourth century A.D. Uh, Theodosius is the first person who orders the large-scale persecutions of pagans. Uh, Massacres, killings, rapings, seizure of property, everything starts happening. Most importantly, there is the seizure of temples and temple properties. Okay, so you do not no longer have a priestly class. The same thing that was done to Gaul, to the Druids, is now being done to the old pagan temples. And that is how secure they had made themselves by this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is not Theodosius who actually sets the ball in motion. That is his son, Honorius. Not his son, I think it's his grandson, Honorius. Honorius becomes Western Roman Empire. And his greatest contribution is, he found that just like India, where you know the government passes a, uh, uh, a bill in parliament, But none of the babus actually execute it on the ground. What he does is he says, listen, buggers, I have killed so many fucking uh, non-Christians now. And yet the majority is still non-Christian. It's because you buggers aren't doing your work. So I am setting a quota. Unless you demolish so many temples, seize so many lands, kill off so many pagans if they refuse to convert... I am going to hold you babus, you IAS babus or RAS, Roman Administrative Service babus, guilty of non-compliance. And I'm going to punish you. You will bear the cost of your province not converting to Christianity. That is the great innovation he comes up with. And from that point, the process speeds up like that. Because everybody in power now realizes that they have no chance remaining a pagan. The emperor is going to kill us. And the East slowly adopts that exact same, not slowly, very rapidly, because they see how effectively it's working. And they adopt this policy extremely quickly. Right. Uh, But going back to Theodosius, why does Honorius become such a fanatic, such an openly blatant fanatic like Theodosius? Now, Theodosius, it was very clear. He saw, you know, the the empire was under pressure from Berber tribes in Africa. It was under pressure from the Persians in uh, the east. It was under pressure from the Germans in the north. So he's sitting thinking, I'm expending so much treasure to pay soldiers to fight all these people. And yet here are some people who are willing to die for their beliefs. I don't have to pay them that much. I have to pay them subsistence, enough to make them survive, but they will fight for their beliefs. And this is what he does. He almost creates a self-financing army in that sense, where you do get paid, of course. I mean, you know, uh, no amount of religion and bhakti can overcome not getting paid and an empty stomach. So he does. But he also finds that the kind of fanaticism it breeds is extremely important in maintaining the empire and especially its military military strength and this is why there becomes an economic rationale to convert the empire to christianity because the more converts you have the more of fundamentalists you have people willing to die for their beliefs and protect the empire the empire of christianity the kingdom of god so to say okay This is the uh, revelation that Theodosius has and Honorius then penalizes it. So between the economic uh, and everything, now you see all the strands are beginning to connect. This is why everything starts going uh, haywire. Within 100 years of Constantine's conversion, the Roman Empire is now majority Christian and there is horrific persecution of the pagans. In fact, the very word Pagan. Okay, understand even the word pagan comes from the Latin Pagani, which is a peasant. So they've already removed all the urban wealth of the peasants. Uh, Urban wealth have all become Christian. Whatever holdouts remain are in the villages and things like that. And they have been reduced to extreme penury. And sorry, one second. At the same time, what is happening, starting around 300 with Constantine and the emperors becoming Christian, they're also thinking, why can't we apply if people are willing to die for an idea? Why won't people stop attacking us if they believe in that same idea? So the Germans, who are the primary threat to the empire, become your primary target for conversion to the empire. And it's very, very successful. Because the Germans are facing population pressure from the other side. Remember, the Huns are slowly coming in and things like that. So they are facing a Hunnic invasion from the east themselves. The Romans aren't letting them, Huns from the east, Romans not letting you south from the Danube, there's severe pressure on them. Uh, Too much uh, 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 climate invasion, all of this shit is happening all at the same time. And they're in poverty, they're in misery, they don't know what to do. And in those circumstances, for you to convert to Christianity is natural. But they don't choose the Nicene Creed. They choose Arianism, which is a different. I'm not going to go into the differences between Arianism and uh, the Nicene Creed. That's a different topic. They overwhelmingly start becoming Christian now understand what is happening. They are being pushed out their their traditional lands or not pushed out There's significant population pressure or climate pressure, whatever, for them to move south. It is whole populations moving. They need land. So where are they moving into? They're moving into Visigothic Spain, ultimately what becomes ultimately Visigothic Spain, but also into Italy, poor soil conditions coming with your entire population First, they militarized. First, only the military elites were coming, which is why the Roman army had become Germanized by this point of time. And the German demand was like you accept the Greek Eastern nature of the Eastern Roman Empire, the Latin nature of the Western Roman Empire. You need to accept, because most of your troops are German who are doing all the dying for you as auxiliaries, that there is a Northern Empire, which is German. Right. Uh, which they staunchly refuse. The, the Romans are like, no, you're barbarians. We're not going to change you. Even though most of the Ger- uh, Roman military chiefs at this point, Stilicho and people like that, are complete Germans, pure German. OK, uh, uh, born brought up from Germanic tribes, Fritigern, Alaric, all of them, they all serve as Magister Militum, which is, to say, field marshal of the Roman army at this point. So when Rome finally falls... I bet you 99% of our viewers would have read that in 410 AD, when Rome is sacked, just a few years after the death of Honorius, when Alaric comes and sacks Rome, that this was the pagan uh, destruction of the Western Roman Empire. Absolute rubbish. Alaric was a Christian. The Germans who sacked Rome were Christians they followed a christian called arianism not aryan not nazi aryan race theory no uh, arianism uh, and they were christian it was a christian on christian sack and the germans inside remember rome had become so germanized by this time that they would have seen no cultural differences between themselves and these other people but anyway what happens is they now start migrating in large numbers and they need the land so conversion to christianity becomes the way of dispossessing you of the land because they need land for their own people so they say if you do not convert now this is an addition to all the horrors that honorius wreaks on the pagans you now have germans who need land to settle down who need land to till you're the only people with land they need to take it away so they make a religious criteria which is unless you convert to christianity you are going to lose your land and that becomes the raison d'etre for land seizures and things like that. Notice the consistent theme out here the economic deprivation that is happening to pagans. First, their temples, and their, uh, because remember, temples are systems of social support. They provide you with uh, both uh, succor as well as uh, their, uh, you know, uh, uh, places where trade can happen, where connections are formed, networking happens, and things like that. You always, are closer to a brother who believes in the same uh, uh, philosophy and things. Uh, they are breaking that apart. So, your social uh, 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 security is gone, your emotional security is gone, your physical security is now gone, and now your land is also gone. And it is linked up to religion in one way or another. There's economics, but remember, even religion is some is economics is bitch uh, in that sense. So, this is what is happening. So in the West, you have the Germans exacerbating what Honorius started for a different set of reasons. Honorius does it purely for fanaticism and for the military need. The Germans do it for uh, their survival needs. In the East, like I told you, it is done, again, for a very specific reason, which is it is essential to the maintenance of the power of the state especially uh, in terms of getting troops and things like that, the military rationale and things. And then it becomes very, very ideological, like all these religions are prone to. But the primary driving factor is the military rationale behind it and the sheer poverty that, uh, you know, the, the sort of philosophical, cap- the theological, uh, uh, tri- the triumph of theology over mythology in that sense. Okay so this is the uh, uh, thing that's happening simultaneously out there now why did the pagans resist first is that they didn't perceive a threat like i said they thought tumara bhagwan hamara bhagwan sub, uh, uh, like you know ram and rahim are the same kind of nonsense uh, there was a uh, uh, once the persecution starts under honorius well technically under theodosius but becomes effective so theodosius started the permanent persecution honorius perfected it okay so uh, it then becomes a permanent state of war that you're living in okay convert or die convert or have your property seized and there are christian mobs because remember the first converts where all the poor people, the children of slaves, or the extremely deprived and things, and the greater your deprivation, the more you are prone to mob violence. So there is also a kind of mafia tactics that come in. Anybody wants to seize your land, and you see this during the Middle Ages. It's much better documented during the Middle Ages, where you know when a local lord didn't want to pay off his loans to the, the Jewish moneylender, he claimed the Jewish moneylender uh, killed and sacrificed a Christian martyr child. And then they, he'd start off a pogrom, kill off the moneylender and his family. So the debt would be wiped out. So what you see out here is this economic resentment bordering to violence. And the state either not enforcing its monopoly on violence or being tacit in that because it suits the national goal. It's beginning to sound awfully like somebody we know, don't we? Um, somebody who sits through riots uh, which happen in the Red Fort and uh, 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 in uh, Shaheen Bagh and does absolutely nothing. That's why I'm giving you this lecture, by the way. Uh, and where was their And their institutions are gone. Their systems of social support are gone. Where was the last stand of the pagans? Where did they, you know, like Gandalf says, you shall not pass. And he puts his staff down. Where was the last stand of the pagans? Zero. Zilch. None. They were like frogs being boiled in water. They didn't know what the hell was happening. They didn't know how to counter it. Okay. And this was the standard reason. So I'm going to end this here because this is how Rome was Christianized. Now, how did the Eastern Roman Empire... I'm going to leave Greece out of this now. I'm only going to talk about Anatolia, which is to say modern day Turkey, the Levant, so Syria, uh, Lebanon, and Israel, and Egypt, Islamize. Now, what we need to remember is, and there is a lot of literature on this, to show you that Muhammad wasn't just like Hezekiah concocts Judaism out of thin air, or, well, not out of thin air. There's a lot of theological basis for it, but anyway. Uh, what you know as modern-day Islam comes about because of the Abbasid Revolution. Okay, Muhammad was one of the traditions that Arabs drew on uh, in the 600s. Then you have the Umayyad Caliphate. And by the way, the Umayyad Cal- Caliphate converted no one to Islam. Um, I wouldn't say no one, but they didn't convert too many people to Islam because they were essentially a rentier people. They wanted extraction, extraction, extraction. We want you to pay the jazia. We are the military elite. We are not going to give you power. We are going to keep taking money from you. And they had a very strict caste system. If you weren't an Arab, they were Arab supremacists. If you weren't an Arab, you weren't fit for office. If you weren't an Arab, you just weren't good enough. If you weren't one of the tribes of Arabia, you were not going to go anywhere in life. OK, and so very quickly, the Umayyad empire, uh, the Umayyad caliphate falls very, very quickly. And the Abbasid revolution comes in. And this is very important for us to understand that as Islam, as you know, it is one, the creation, one and entirely the creation of the Abbasid revolution against the Ottomans, uh, uh, against the Umayyads, not the Ottomans. Sorry, What is so Curious about the Abbasid Revolution is that it starts off in Persia, Arab leadership, but uh, and remember the Umayyads wanted taxes, so they didn't convert. They these people want to convert. Why? Because they want troops. They want a new loyal mercenary corps. So they're willing to convert. And the heft, the foot soldiers of the Abbasid Revolution are Turkic mercenaries. Uh, We've spoken about this before, the Iran-Turan concept, and I think the Turkic invasions or one of those things. But the Iran-Turan concept, so Turan-Turkic people, form the backbone of this entire revolution. They become the military elite. Right? So what is happening out here is that you have Turks who have started coming into first Persia and then ultimately go to Anatolia. Now, why are they coming in here? In what form are they coming in here? If you go to Iran, you see their soil quality is extremely poor. They're overwhelmingly desert or extremely arid. It's only in the north, extreme north, that you have uh, great greenery and uh, things like that. Uh, So you have complete populations moving. And like we saw about Germans in Italy, When populations move, you need the land. And what happened to uh, uh, Roman pagans in uh, Italy, because of the Germans, you now see happening to Zoroastrians in Iran. So remember, it wasn't the Arabs who converted Iran. It was the Turks who converted Iran. Turks coming in, the need, pastoralist horde meets arid land, large tracts of Arid land perfect for pastoralism for them to graze sheep meets new religion, which promises them political power. Bang. It's all your jigsaw puzzles are all getting solved out in one shot. Right. So what happens is that you see the confiscation of land and the Zoroastrians keep getting poorer and poorer and poorer. Uh, these guys benefit from the wealth of Persia and the Persian Empire. Well, it's not the Persian Empire anymore, but they become so powerful. Turkic military elite, the tax base of Persia, uh seizure of lands from Zoroastrians and things like that. So the conversion of Persia happens very, very, very rapidly. Right? Because it's the perfect storm all happening at the same time. And it's it's bizarre because the Abbasid revolt is essentially a social justice m- movement. It's like Black Lives Matter, or in that case, it was Turkic Lives Matter. It was literally just that. It, it was exactly Turkic lives matter or non-Arab lives matter. That's what it was. Uh, and it does a complete institutional capture. Now, we need to understand why Iran and Anatolia. Anatolia happens in the 10 hundreds. So there's another two, 300 years for it to happen. But it's the same rationale. Poor quality land enables... The movement of people who are accustomed to a pastoral lifestyle dependent on poor quality land. If it is highly agricultural, you can't turn farms into sheep grazing. It doesn't make sense because agriculture gets you more yield than pastoralism. It's a sedentary lifestyle. Which is why Persia and Turkey sort of face the exact same thing. These people come in, they want your land, they confiscate your land. And once your temples and things like that, most of the lands are allocated to temples. Once your temples or your churches, by this time, Turkey, Anatolia is a Christian. Once your churches are seized, the wealth of the church is seized, the land of the church is seized. There is nothing you can do. All your social security mechanisms, your uh, you know, your well-being as much as you can have social security in those days. Please don't say, oh, uh, there was no social security, whatever. I mean, you know, monkey shanti, so to say, in that time, all of it goes out of the window. Your education systems go, your networks go. So you won't, you don't have trade. uh, uh, You can't do trade with uh, anyone anymore because they will stick to their own uh, biradari and things like that. All of it goes. Egypt is very different Egypt like Turkey, so the Turks start going into, and isn't it curious that uh, Anatolia remains Christian till the Turks go in. Persia remains Zoroastrian till the Turks come in. Egypt remains Coptic till the Turks come in. Coptic Christian till the Turks come in. So the first Turkic dynasty is the Tulunids established in Egypt. Now, Egypt is a different economic pattern. Like we discussed, it is the breadbasket, was the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. It has enormous surplus production because the Nile is such a predictable river, the droughts and famines are extremely rare and far between. Okay, It's one of the most predictable rivers, uh, generally, uh, safe from climate change, uh, rivers that we know of, uh, minimum. Not that it hasn't been disastrous at times, but minimum. And it is such a high-yield river that... It doesn't make sense for the Turks to first bring in their flocks of sheep and things like that into Egypt. So they come in as a military elite. It is only the military coming in out there. And they come there as a rentier state because they want to extract taxes, jazia. And jazia, remember, is addition. Now, if you're a Muslim, what happens is you obviously pay your land tax. Whatever land you own, you pay tax on it. On top of that, you provide military service. If you're not a Muslim, military service is not compulsory. So you pay jazia tax. So this is a kind of double tax that non-Muslims have to pay. And the, uh, you know, the uh, Tulunids are very happy doing this. When the Shia, uh, Fatimid Shia Caliphate comes in from the West, uh, from Libya and conquers Egypt from the Tulunids, they're also extremely happy with the system that, you know, most of you stay Christian, but we're going to take away all your wealth slowly, slowly. The same thing happens in India. Uh, 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 The same thing, by the way, is happening. Well, I'll come to India later. Anyway, so what happens here is they don't want to convert you. The economic need to convert you does not exist. Quite the reverse. They want state revenue. They've got the military elites. They've got military migrations happening. They don't need a military force. They need your revenue. And then, boom, what happens? The crusades start. In the ten hundreds, the Crusades start. In uh, the 1200s, the Mongol invasions start. And these become a massive threat to Egypt. Because remember, Egypt is a superpower at this point. Because of the agricultural wealth it's sitting on, it influences everything that is happening in Baghdad, in Damascus, in Aleppo, in Jerusalem at this point. And Egypt is actively interfering in all these parts, like it once did under the pharaohs. So what happens here is, The number of troops that you required is no longer sufficient. You need a lot more troops. So now there is incentive for you not to get jazia, but to get more military service. And that is where the conversion incentive starts. Isn't it curious that Egypt becomes a Muslim majority country only in the 1200s, when Turkic rule is absolutely clearly established out there. Nobody other than a Turk can rule. To such an extent that since the period of uh, Alexander, well, more uh, uh, Assyrian Empire than Persian Empire, since the, uh, basically since about five six hundred BC, Abdel Gamal Nasser in 1950 is the first native Egyptian to rule Egypt. Uh, uh, since the eight hundreds, you essentially have Turks ruling Egypt, uh, right up to the last Khedive of Egypt. So now you have an economic rationale that everybody needs to become uh, uh, Muslim because of military service. And this is where then the land seizure starts. It's not, They're not content at just demolishing the church. They also want to seize uh, uh, this thing. But there's something else happening out here. When Islam, when the Abbasid revolt happens, notice the iconoclasm movement in the Eastern church in the Byzantine church, doesn't start till not when the Arabs become a threat, but when the Abbasid revolt really picks up. And they see that they're going on losing to people who refuse to put a face to their God. And so it starts up a movement within Eastern Christianity called iconoclasm, which is to say you don't worship God. So when you go to Hagia Sophia, you can clearly see layers where the old... Uh, church of holy wisdom Hagia Sophia has been plastered over or something like that and there's a second layer of paintings for when iconoclasm is defeated that's a different argument I'm not going to go into it but what happens here is that they use iconoclasm uh, to it becomes a uh, self-reinforcing thing, Abbasid iconoclasm or uh, uh, image destruction feeds Christian image destruction, which is then used later on to justify more Muslim image destruction in Egypt and Syria at this point of time, Um, even though it happens in the 700s and 800s in Byzantium, uh, six, seven and uh, well, no, seven and 800s in Byzantium. It then refracts back onto Egypt because it's a fantastic tool for saying Not only am I demolishing your churches now, I'm also seizing your land. So the economic prosperity of the Egyptians is uh, completely taken away, of Coptic Christian uh, uh, Egyptians is taken away. And you are uh, 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 temples, uh, your, your churches are demolished. So remember, church demolition by itself doesn't destroy a community, but seizure of its lands and wealth does destroy the community because of the way the entire pre-in, uh, pre-industrial pre uh, agricultural biradari system works. So this is very important. Now, what happened in India prior to 1947, starting with the Turkic invasions? We had very rich land, you know, uh, along with Ukraine and Poland, India has the highest percentage of arable land anywhere in the world. 48 to 52% of our land is arable. So, like I said, it doesn't make sense to bring your entire population, your Turkic nomadic pastoralist population, down here. So, like we said in the horse video, if you saw, that is why we couldn't breed horses. Understand, it was the same reason that we could not breed war horses in this country that Turkish populations did not move into this country. So, the loss of the war horse meant the protection of Hinduism. And that is why the horses should be sacred to you. It is precisely because we could not produce horses that we managed to survive as a Hindu state, because had they come in large population numbers, you would have been wiped out because the entire economics of conversion would have changed. Now, what is happening is only a military elite, mostly men are coming out here. OK, violent military men, some of the elite women are coming, but mostly it's only an elite military class coming. They are not bringing in the sheep. They're not bringing in their people. They are coming here to seek rent from the land. Okay. They want to keep taxing you. They're, it is good for them that you stay pagan so that they can apply the jazia tax. military We will do military service. You give us jazia tax. And the way this entire thing works is you see that there is What is the external threat out here? Egypt had, why did the economics change in Egypt? It was the same logic in Egypt as it was in India, but it was geography dependent. Egypt faced a Mongol invasion. Egypt faced a uh, 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 need for Egypt to, you know, project power across the Middle East, uh, right up to the Iraqi border. So it needed extra troops. So the economics of conversion changed. In India, tell me which Indian empire do you know uh, during the Delhi Sultanate that waged war outside the territory of modern-day India or Pakistan. They were mostly invading in the south and things like that. They weren't going outside. So they had enough troops and enough military superiority that they didn't have a peer competitor to change the economics of conversion for them. Right? The next thing was uh, when Egypt was largely Christian and the crusades start. They're like, oh, my God, we live in a Christian majority country and the people invading us are Christian. God forbid that our Christians make common cause with their Christians. That was another reason that they forcibly converted. From the 10 hundreds to the 1200s, Egypt was forcibly converted. What was the only external threat India faced? The Mongols. And, you know, today uh, there are people who want to see the Mongols as some dharmic, fellow shaman, pagan uh, people, there was no such identification, no bloody Hindu at that point of time felt any kind of kinship with the Mongol at that point of time. I doubt they even knew the Mongols existed. Okay, okay. even Mohammed uh, 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 Mahmood of Ghazni was coming and destroying the Somnath temple. Rajendra Chora was so completely unconcerned, he was more interested in going and sacking Sri Vijaya and uh, 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 Malaysia and Indonesia than he was in protecting the Somnath Temple even though he was a Shiva Bhakta and built the Gangai Ikonda Temple so this identification that the Christians had that Egyptian Christians had with Crusaders well the Muslims thought they did uh, uh, this didn't exist so there was no uh, either military rationale for it social rationale for it or uh, uh, economic rationale for these people to want to convert you to Islam Now, you will ask me, there is not a single temple left. That is correct. Uh, There is no old temple left in the north. Quite correct. Like I said, demolition is not the same as seizure of land. They wanted, they thought of you as a cash cow. Okay, so even though they would demolish your temple to show their power, they allowed you to retain large parts of your land and things. The social structures around it were maintained because you are their cash cow. You produce the taxes which they extort from you. Okay. So, again, it didn't make economic sense for them to, uh, 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 and of course, you didn't see each other as Hindus. So, Hindu empires were very happy attacking other Hindu empires. Like uh, in the last podcast, Kushal, like I explained to you, it was, uh, you know, the uh, Vijayanagar and the Gajapatis and uh, uh, Vijayanagar and the Gangas who were uh, uh, ultimately uh, uh, responsible for the destruction of Odisha. Uh, The next thing you need to understand is that Syria, once it becomes the Islam, becomes the uh, government religion in places like Syria, Iran, Turkey and Egypt, you had extremely high end states which provided significant public goods, caravanserais, public baths, fountains markets, uh, you know, uh, hamams, uh, things like that, you know, hot water, uh, uh, hot steam baths and things like that, Uh, public ovens and things like that. All of these were provided. In India, you have none of these. It's an extremely low end state. So even though the Turks promised you because like we discussed in the Turkic invasion series, Turkic slavery was actually a boon. It offered you great prospects for promotion. But in India, there was no point converting to Islam because it's such a low end state. What are the benefits you're going to get from becoming a Muslim? You may not have to pay jazia, but then you have to go fight in somebody's war and die because you have to then provide military service. Right. So there were all kinds of things that didn't work out. And the differential. See, if you're here and after converting, you go here. That makes a lot of sense. You'll convert. But if you're here and after converting, you're only going here, that's not making much sense. And remember, this was also a period of time when Indians were completely untrusted by the Turkic military elite. Balban detested Indians. You look at most of the things that these people write. They were full of, they simply weren't willing to give you that class status. The Turkic, the tribal, the uh, religious conversion didn't ensure you entered tribal loyalty patterns. So this was another thing that prevented the differential of conversion from being so great as to make it attractive, even for socially upwardly mobile people, or people who wanted to be socially upwardly mobile. Mm -hmm. Then you have this whole issue that uh, if you read Ambedkar, you see this, that it is during the Muslim period that the number of Dalits increases exponentially. And why is that? That's because on one hand, you yourselves as Hindus are ostracizing these people and the Muslims are coming and doing all kinds of atrocities. But this was natural. In those periods of time, you did atrocities and you're using your caste tools to create more and more and more social uh, uh, immobility that you're creating more and more and more Dalits. And mind you, India is Hindu, not because of you or me, it is because of the Hindu dalit who faced oppression both from Muslims and from you bastards and still refused to convert. Tumko unka peena instead of bloody uh, trumpeting Jati Varna nonsense. Okay, uh, uh, you're unfit even for their charnamrit if you believe in Jati Varna nonsense. Uh, 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 so you know, th- this is how the economics of all of it worked. And there was a belief because Hinduism had that theological strength that we talked about when we opened this thing. That it because it never separated philosophy and mythology; it maintained and it developed a theology. It wasn't open to intellectual challenge by Islam either. Okay, uh, so there was this entire thing where the economics didn't work out, uh, uh, the uh, uh, motives didn't work out, the social structures, the theology—none of it worked out. And that is why you didn't convert. It's not that you, uh, 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 you know, heroically uh, uh, defended yourself for dharma or anything like that. I know you'd love to believe all these uh, wonderful stories like Padmavat and all of that. That is, you know, it, it's it's uh, it's a sub-factor to the economic and social reality at that point of time. So please wake up and smell why you did not. Okay. Now, Fast forward to the British. The British understand they didn't interfere in religion beyond a point. They did not seize your temple property or anything like that. And that Muslims also, did, I mean, they seized property, of course, but it wasn't the kind of systematic destruction because they wanted the Jazia income and all of that to happen. Uh, they didn't do it. And in Bengal, I can tell you, we uh, for a, the longest period of time, our grandparents used to see the British as liberators. OK, when uh, uh, Siraj Uddaula was removed, I can bet you most of Hindu Bengal clapped because they were uh, British rule was far less capricious than uh, 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 Turkic rule was. So no issues with that. Why does the danger begin post 1947? And I'm going to end in about five to ten minutes now. Sorry, I've gone over to the time limit. Uh, why? What happens in 1947 to 1952? all the Hindu temple lands get nationalized. The government of India takes them over. So your community response mechanism is decapitated overnight. Okay, your sources of religious so identity-based revenue and whatever social services you could use those to provide, you are no longer able to provide them. So understand what is happening here. The same thing that happened in Rome, in Constantinople, uh, Rome, the Germans, Constantinople with the uh, 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 Christian Roman emperors, uh, with the Seljuks in Turkey and with the uh, Turks in, uh, 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 initially in Persia and then in Egypt. Exact, exact same economic rationale sets in here. You don't have the community response mechanisms left. You have been, this is almost a decapitation blow for you. No community can survive that. Okay. Second, what happens is like the discriminatory legislation brought in uh, by Honorius, not entirely like Honorius, uh, privileging only Christians in positions of power. What happens out here is you give a monopoly on social services to certain minority sections. So schools and in an information age, education is gold. <coughs> Minorities can set up schools at will. Majority community requires all kinds of clearances and what not to happen. So hospitals, schools, colleges, they're all set up by Christian bodies and things like that. So if you were a low end state where you know the benefits of conversion during Turkic rule weren't that great, maximum here, suddenly what has happened is you're still a pre-industrial third world, low level shithole. But suddenly there is a community which is able to provide schooling, hospitals, all kinds of things for you. Uh, that differential just increased this much. And because all your land was seized, your ability to respond to it reduced this much. OK, so the differential has now become this big. OK, then what happens is because this differential has become big. There is povertyarianism and a lack of hope. And what did we discuss in Rome? Who did Rome appeal to the most, the most oppressed and extorted and extracted out of? So that message of suffering being glorious, of poverty being uh, uh, next to righteousness and all that, it appeals even more to the people who have been dispossessed. So now you have even eroded your theological strength. Okay, because poverty, you can't think about points of high theology. Poverty, you're concentrating on food. You don't know where your food is going to come from. You're not going to think of Shiva, Vishnu, Brahma. So even your theological rigor in combating Christianity goes down here. And what happens now is, because the education gap becomes so much, the education, health, they're all interlinked, you know, uh, uh, better health, better education, all of that, uh, better social services provided by the church and all of that, and your inability to provide the same for your own, means that because of the education gap, these chaps have a much better messaging system. You even now you look at the BJP in the RSS, they're stuck in 60s, 70s jargon. They're unable to macro. They're unable to abstract. They're unable to come up with anything even remotely sophisticated. Usually when a BJP chap starts talking about sociology, doesn't matter if it's a minister or a prime minister, you go cringe. Where was this fucking idiot come from? OK, so. The the level of sociological, anthropological illiteracy in the BJP and the RSS is, it's really, it's scary. I know you chaps think it's a joke, but understand it is the idiots who don't do STEM, who ultimately, because of their hatred of people in STEM, end up controlling the world. Hate is the biggest driver, okay? And it is this kind of, you know, pathetic knowledge of sociology that is going to screw us over. Then what happens is, so this is the Christians in India that I've been talking about. This is the trajectory of the Christian growth in India. In Islam, what is happening, and by the way, incidentally, one other thing is that when your education system, you create this, uh, 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 to counter it, you then create reservation. So much for OBCs, so much for SCSTs and all of that. There is nothing to verify that you haven't converted. You could be a Christian. You could have converted to Islam. Is there any verification process or notification process that you have converted? No, it is your SCST certificate is based on if your parents are SC or SD. So as it is, the difference is so much. And now because these people can double dip, they get both the benefits of being part of the church and the social services of the church. Plus, because there is no verification mechanism, they can also dip into what is re- required for you. So they also get the benefits of reservation. So the gap just became this much. It's now off, off the charts. You can't see my the top of my hand and the bottom of my hand. That is the differential right now. Okay, double dipping. Double dipping in the social benefits mechanism. For Islam, it's something different. In 1857, what happens is, The entire Muslim nobility is, uh, well, I mean, it's blamed on Muslims. 1857 is seen by the British deliberately as a Muslim riot. And they are uh, uh, basically dispossessed, uh, whatever. So the polity gets stuck in this feudal thing. They are agrarian or artisans and they remain stuck in a feudal thing where the local mohalla boss or chief or whatever, the former Nawab or Asaduddin Novesi type people, they control the calm. The local com, the jund within the region. Okay. It's extremely feudal at this point. The rentier economics of not conversion don't apply. So now it moves into theology. When there is economics preventing you from converting people, the economic rationale has now been removed. You are not the landowners anymore. So now you fall back on ideology which tells you to convert. Okay. You have to convert. It is a religious duty now. So you have set the roots for fundamentalism. Okay. Second, what you've done is uh because you have essentially, when you did democracy and gave uh, uh, uh the right to vote to everyone, Muslims have remained a feudal polity, which means a few strong men control how the community votes. It is in his interests and his community's interests to expand the size of that vote bank. So you just incentivized him to convert more people in order to expand his reach and his power. The third thing that you did is you incentivized him to use coercive force. Okay, so he will come, he will riot. He will convert you by force. He will do love jihad and all of that. I mean, love jihad is a more complex uh, thing, grooming gangs and things. Uh, that's We can do a separate podcast on that because that's a completely different soci- sociological trajectory. But uh, uh, anyway, let's just stick to forced conversions and things like that. You have effectively incentivized him by the electoral dynamic to force people to convert. You have made it good for him to convert people. He needs to convert people in order to survive. Then, what happens is you have a state which, under the BJP, the state has been failing. The state does not exercise its monopoly on violence. Godra happens, what is Modi doing? He's playing his violin like Nero uh, uh, on the roof. When the Red Fort burns, he's playing his violin on the roof like Nero. When uh, 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 Shaheen Bag is happening, he- He's sitting and playing his violin. I don't think they had a violin those days. He was playing a harp or something like that. A harp or lute or something like that. He's playing, uh, sitting on his roof. When uh, you're, uh, they're coming and raping your women and killing your people in Bengal, you're still sitting and playing your uh, little uh, uh, harp in, uh, uh, sitting in Delhi, uh, talking about Atmanirbhar uh, Bharat, Vishwaguru, Sabka Sat, Sabka bhakwas, and all that nonsense. So not only have you incentivized this sort of forced conversion thing, The people who don't want to convert, you aren't even providing them with a protection mechanism against conversion. So you've removed their uh, 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 social security. You've removed their ability to counter another religion uh, at an intellectual level. You have removed their ability to exclusively benefit from things that are meant to accrue only to Hindus. You have incentivized violence against them. You refuse to use the mechanisms of state to protect them, like we discussed under Theodosius. Now you see it all adding up. There is actually an incentive for a Christian to convert you. The Indian state ensures that, the BJP ensures that. The BJP ensures, the BJP's actions over the last seven years ensure that there is an incentive for the Muslim to convert you. They have ensured that there is an incentive for you to save your own life to convert or To uh, uh, for better social uh, socioeconomic uh, opportunities to convert. okay, and then the counter to that is, well, the uh, BJP has created great uh, uh, Hindu awareness. There is Hindu consolidation that is now being broken down by all this Brahminism and all that nonsense. Like I said, the education gap is so far ahead that they're able to run rings around you in propaganda. Your propaganda isn't even one tenth of the fart that comes out of them. Okay, it's extremely crude propaganda that preaches to the converted. Okay, so you have that. Now notice all the trends. Mark Twain: History doesn't repeat itself; it rhymes. I've been trying to show you what everything happening with India, especially in the last seven years, it has been rhyming it has been rhyming with the way the christians took over rome it has uh, 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 and it has been uh, rhyming with the way the turks took over persia anatolia and egypt so instead of going around screaming uh, on micro and things like that oh, is gaume start macroing start abstracting in short basically what is happening is that between your varna jati discourse your population pressure, mind you, the population pressure that is happening today in India is another thing because your misery is increasing. Your access to resources is decreasing. So between your Varna Jati discourse, you are destroying Hindu unity. What little unity exists? Like we discussed, there's not much. Your population pressure is making your things worse. Your loss of social and religious support is complete and the economic rationale goes against you now. The differential rationale goes against you now. You've got the perfect storm. You're screwed. You're screwed and you're lucky if like Rome in the uh, uh, 100 years after the uh, seizure of things uh, became a Christian majority. You're you're lucky if you will survive the century out without becoming a non-Hindu uh, majority country. So best of luck to you. And you know, the extent, I just want to give one last example before I finish of how good these people are at propaganda because of the educational gap between you, uh, you stupid people who go around talking about Jati Varna and all that nonsense, and the uh, sophisticated narrative coming out from those who want to convert you. The Supreme Court today prioritizes written traditions, which is to say of the book, the bible and the quran over oral and cultural traditions which is what most of hinduism is based on they have executed a mind capture of all 32 judges of the supreme court please understand that this is your constantine converting to islam uh, to uh, christianity moment please understand that you are not able to do anything Your current government is too stupid to even understand the gravity of the problem. They're historically clueless. Their idea of history is restricted to if uh, the Rama's Pushpaka Vimana was actually the Boeing 787 or the Airbus A350. They don't know which one it was. Uh, Or if the Brahmastra was actually a nuclear bomb or a neutron bomb or some crap like that. This kind of sophisticated history... You, if you tell them half the words I just used to you, they won't even understand that. They're that stupid. Please wake up. Okay? And stop all this bullshit you people do, you know, uh, uh, talking about all kinds of nonsense without focusing on the macro. Start focusing on the macro now. Understand what is happening to you and why it is happening to you. Post haste now. You need Hindu temples return to Hindu control. Post-haste, now you don't build more temples. You start building schools and hospitals. Post-haste, now you demand that SCSC certificates will have to be countersigned by your local temple who will certify that he is a Hindu, he or she is a Hindu, and has at no point of time strayed. And I can confirm, in fact, that this person keeps coming to religious class and uh, worshipping at uh, temple and things like that. Do that now. Okay. And stop all this nonsense about Vishwaguru, Atmanirbar, Bharat, and Man Ki Bakwas, and uh, Sabka Saath Sabka Bakwas.
0: Okay. So, so here's the thing. Uh, Abhijit has shared a lot of views. Now, uh, I'm I have agreements on some. I have disagreements on some. But I'm not going to share my disagreements one bit because when I do a podcast, it's never about my views. It's always about the views of the guests. And I want to make sure that as many as possible viewer questions are answered because at the end of the day, you know, it's about uh, these live streams are only about the guests and the viewers so I don't want to make it a situation where you know I ask a question to Abhijit and then we do that it's unfair on the live viewers so what I'm going to do is I'm going to start asking questions now uh, so that Abhijit can and, and Abhijit answers thode short rakhenge so that you know we can an, ask many more questions because uh, we, that way we can be fair, fair so first question is which country is safe for Hindus and future refugees <laughs> uh uh
1: none none you literally have nowhere to go uh because uh of intersectionality these people got uh uh uh, global islamism got onto the intersectionality bandwagon uh you are now nowhere uh what uh uh, and remember the intersectional woke types have executed i don't it's an irreversible institutional capture in the united states uh you're not going to find anywhere safe anymore you're finished uh at best you'll eke out a pathetic existence like zoroastrians do uh 30 40 000 people communities in different parts of the world uh, and in the end you will be a glorious chapter of history and nothing more probably not even that uh if you abrahamize
0: no no so um, let me read the question so somebody has asked uh, abhiji let's flip the sides Uh, can you see the hindus becoming abrahamized and the most ruthless and intolerant religion known to mankind
1: no because then you destroy what's unique about hinduism what you do is understand from the french state how to apply the law how to apply equality When the state, see, it's very simple things required. Why does the state control Hindu funds, but no other funds? Return that. Why are minorities free to start up institutions as they wish, but majority is not? Demand equality on that. Why does the state not use its monopoly on violence? Why does it not uh, shoot rioters? And why does it not protect people who uh, are victims of rioters? Insist on police reforms. Uh, Why does the uh, Supreme Court keep privileging uh, 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 written traditions over oral uh, traditions? Seek judicial reforms. I can tell you right now, I don't want anything to do with Abrahamism. If you want to go ahead and become an Abrahamic uh, uh, chimpanzee, go ahead. I will
0: not. So this is actually you've answered the next question to the next question was uh, Article 25 to 30 is against Hinduism. Judiciary and government will not change or abolish. What can Hindus do to build and save these? I think you've answered that. So Catch, Catch your BJP parliamentarian by his balls and keep
1: crushing them till he goes and develops the gut. He should be more scared of you than he is of his prime
0: minister. Your prime minister needs to be scared of you. All right. So the next was, what is the possible reason behind Hinduism being able to survive onslaughts when other contemporary religions got wiped out? That's a very good question, Abiji. What onslaughts? That's what I've been trying to tell you.
1: The onslaughts were dictated by economic reality. So that's what I've been explaining over the last two hours. Was I not clear about it? What part did I specifically leave out in all of it? Destruction is not seizure. Okay. Uh, population movement is not the movement of the elites. Okay. Uh, 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 the economics of conversion don't uh, uh, survive. What do you think I've been speaking about for the last hour and a half? Sorry, was I not clear? Did
0: it cut out? Okay. So can you suggest some books and authors or the sources to read to understand what you're saying even more in detail?
1: No, because a lot of it is going into land records and shit like that, because uh, it's uh, uh, it's too many different papers Uh, to do this presentation. I had to read almost 96 different, uh, uh, not almost exactly 96 different uh, uh, journal articles and things like that and data records and things like that. See, stop asking me these questions about books and authors. Nobody's collating this stuff for you. You understand that, right? And that is the problem. Indians never collate. There's no one book that's going to give you knowledge. Stop behaving like an Abrahamic. It's only an Abrahamic that seeks that one book that's going to answer all their life problems.
0: All right. So do you think Russia and China have used communism in a way in which they were able to maintain their demography, cultural Mm -hmm. views better? Does Hinduism need a communism-like backbone to only sustain itself but also strive?
1: Uh, How did Russia maintain their demographic? Russia converted to Christianity, did it not?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say China,
1: yeah. China, uh, uh, communism uh, uh, is a religion in a sense, but also understand China was one of the biggest targets of Christian conversion and they were succeeding. Communism actually stopped that more because it was anti-religion. But understand there's nothing left of Chinese religion anymore. Communism also wiped out Chinese religion. So when communism ends and the anti-religion stance ends, you will actually see China Christianize. There was never a Muslim threat to
0: China per se, so uh, that. All right. So this question, actually, this question is asked uh, two, three times. So I'm, I'm just making, using one. So a lot of people ask, don't you think religion, anyway, religion in just general, old school religions, all of them are dying at, at different paces because see, let, let let me draw this analogy for you. The the reason Islam is dying slower than maybe Christianity is because there is a gap of the uh, you know of 16, 600 years between when Islam came up and when Christianity came yeah. up. But if you look at the trajectory, the trajectory is the same with every religion. So don't you think eventually all old religions are going to die? That's just the natural way. And in that sense, so, the, so the, the question here is, comes no, no, no. In, na? I understood the question. So I'll tell you what, 600 year
1: gap, the post-Christian West. Now, first of all, understand, we now realize that religion is an extremely important form of social control. Because post religion is something we have negotiated with over, over the last 30,000 years, and it's imperfect, but it's still okay. You look at a post religious society like America or Britain, and the kind of wokeism and SJWism going on out there, political correctness and SJWism are a tool of social control in post religious societies. Understand a post-religious society is an extremely dangerous, bleak one. You're going back to pogroms. You're going back to pogrom. Right now, it is only verbal and online pogroms. Ultimately, it will become real pogroms. Okay, number one. Number two, understand post-religious West is going to happen quickly. But they are in alignment with Islam, which is not going to get post-religious anytime soon. So you have that gap in between. So unless you are basically willing to wait to first get Christianized, because remember, third world Christianity is very different from first world Christianity, or Islamized, and then wait for Christianity to become post, uh, uh, post-religious in the West is a product of industrialization. You aren't going to reach there because you haven't industrialized. You're going to suffer third world Christianity and third world Islam. The UAE and Oman and places like that are enlightened today because they've become post—they've uh, 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 become industrial societies. They haven't yet become post-religious, but they've become industrial societies. So they have set the path to it. You aren't going to become post-religious. You're a third-world shithole. You're fundamentally okay. a third-world shithole. You are not. Please don't extrapolate Western examples without context here. Industrialize and then we can talk.
0: Okay. Abhijit, what is the reason Islam and Christianity were not able to assimilate into Hinduism and Jesus and Allah became a part of uh, Hinduism? What? How did Jesus and Allah ever become a part of Hinduism? No, no, that's what they're saying. So what I think what the question is, is that usually what happens in the history of India is whenever some outside meme enters the larger meme of India, that meme Mm. became a part of the Hindu pantheon and we just expanded our pantheon. No, we never did. did. It's
1: very curious that, you know, all the other gods that may have come in got absorbed. But uh, uh, where do you see Christianity, uh, Jesus ever being absorbed into the Hindu pantheon? Where do you see Allah ever being uh, absorbed into the Hindu pantheon? At best, people will go to uh, 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 the Chishti Dargah or something like that. That is not the same as deifying Allah. No, it's not happened. It, it may have happened if th- there was give and take. But th- since there was no give and take, it's not really happened. What you have is a very artificially contrived narrative created by the Congress since the 1920s, 30s of the so-called Ganga-Jamuni Tehzee, which never realistically existed. We existed lives of extreme tension in parallel with each other. There was no intermingling.
0: All right. I don't know if... uh... I think it's uh, it's a query because look, people will ask questions. So this one is like, do you have, do these two facts have anything to do with religiosity or dharma? Unlike England and mainland Europe, why didn't Sri Lanka ever have an empire in India? And two, why was Burma such a strong empire? And why did Southeast Asian empires have such a martial culture? What does that this have to do with this particular this thing? Yeah, that's the question right The, the question is, do you think it has anything to do with religion? no
1: it has very little to do with religion the strength or weakness of empires depends on economics the religion of an empire depends on economics okay so it has
0: nothing to do with religion Mm -hmm. okay so now uh so somebody has said now that there are some hindu converts and uh, sorry just quickly
1: if you want to understand why england had an empire uh, uh, uh and uh uh then please go and read Barbara Tuchman's A Calamitous 14th Century. Uh, You'll get most of your answers out there. The population ratios, the population differential between France and England, the uh, sort of over-dependence on human power as opposed to uh, human power compensation mechanisms like the Welsh uh, longbow and things like that that the British used, the militarization of British society uh, and things like that. So go check that out. Uh, 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 Sri Lanka and Burma are very complex answers. They'll take too long, but it has nothing to do with Dharma. It has to do entirely with economics.
0: All right. So I I will twist this question. So I'll say, could we see that maybe the intellectual renaissance that we are looking in 21st century Hinduism or Dharma, whatever we call, call you, maybe it might start coming from outside India where there is more freedom and there are no 295As and 153As to stop those kinds of inquiries
1: no no uh where are you seeing a great western uh dharmic guru and russia i can tell you the hindu community there you know you have tiny little pockets of them
0: mm-hmm.
1: they are not even recognized by their own state in russia you can only have four recognized religions that existed before uh 1000 AD or something. So you can have uh, uh, Judaism, uh, Christianity, Buddhism, and Islam. That's it. All other religions are not allowed. Mm. If you exist, no uh, uh, benefits to you and things like that. No.
0: Mm. Okay. So let me see some other question. Um, Okay. This is, I think, about the first half of your chat, somebody had a query and they must have typed it then. So they say, Abhijit, you talked about how the Christians use theology to push the pagans out. Why weren't the Christians in Egypt vulnerable to the same tactics? I think this is this was asked during the first half.
1: So Christians used theology, amongst other tools, to push pagans out. What does that have to do with Egyptian Christians vulnerable to the same tactics? I didn't understand this question. What's the equivalence you're drawing? Hmm. Christians have theology. They're obviously not going to be vulnerable to theology, right?
0: Mm OK, so this is this question is, is it safe to say it all comes down to acquire transfer of wealth and land as the onset of any forced cultural mutation?
1: Yes, it is. It's quite safe to say that. OK, a lot of it depends on climate change, uh, on your geopolitical context. Remember, like I said, all multi-causal. It doesn't just come from transfer of wealth and land. It is wealth of land intersecting with your political reality or with your geopolitical reality, uh, your own climate. Uh, you know, if if you are a uh, 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 arid land suitable for pasture, then pastoralists will come to you. If you are a fertile land with lots of agricultural surplus, then only their elites will come to you. So it's like I said, m- multi-causal, multi-causal, multi-causal. I don't know why this message seems to keep getting lost. Multi-causal.
0: Okay. Somebody's so nice. They've said, your grace with reservation and welfare of our current government structure isn't being Hindu actually incentivized. Why such a huge threat of conversion then? That is what I just told you.
1: It is not a unique, uh, this thing. Reservation is for you, fine. But understand, are you getting free hospitalization? Are you getting schools? Are you getting access to uh, 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 XYZ? And by the way, when you convert, you're losing none of the benefits. So it's double dipping. If you turn Christian, you can right now it's this. If you're Christian, you get this. Where are you going to go?
0: Hmm. Okay. The next question. Because yeah, a I'm follow getting up. To
1: theory, what? Was I breaking up? Because a lot of these questions seems to indicate that people went listening or I wasn't clear enough. Was I not clear enough?
0: Well, uh, sometimes what happens is you tend to use certain words that are not clear to people, as in at a, at a conceptual level, because you have to define things that you're using. It's okay. People will listen to this two, three times and they'll get it. But still, we should always take questions. So, if Hindus are given control of their temples, what governance structure do you recommend? Giving it to individuals might be difficult to use. Ka- Just give it okay, back. Chal, no, no. Chal. Abhi, main, so chal, chal. I'll, I'll push back on this. So, I'll give you an example. I'll give you a very tangible example of this. So, uh, so. I'm someone who actually supports temple freedom, like like you. But this is there is a genuine problem in this. So there are some big temples, right? So when it comes to a big temple, a big temple under government control is a loss-making proposition for Hindu dharma and the temple itself. Because uh, temples are driven by economics too. And when it comes to a big temple, they tend to have a lot of pilgrimage. And unki Hundigi collection and other peripheral activities or other donations to the temple, etc., etc., tend to be a lot more but i'll give you an example hinduism's strength is not just big temples see hinduism is a unique religion which has some abrahamic traits but is also decentralized at the same time now what happens to 100 small temples so I'll, now hear me out now small temples may not have a very big hundi collection because small temple hai, gaon ke log jaate now they need government support now if we free them and government doesn't support them they will die isn't that a loss to Hinduism? OK, no, it
1: isn't. And I'll tell you why. If you look at the net collection, it's enough to sustain you. Balance of the big versus the small. Because each, according to their own means, it will rationalize. You understand? You can then, if you want, create a structure to uh, uh, you know, set up uh, uh, Hindu charitable endowments board, comprising the top Hindu industrialists of uh, India, who then decide who apportion and decide where the revenues are going to go to and rationalize the revenues, create uh, 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 assured uh, college admissions for the children of priests, assured uh, uh, school admissions for the children of priests. Okay, Uh, uh, which will come about because you're setting up Hindu uh, uh, colleges and things like that. Uh, uh, You you then set up, uh, you know, uh, Hindu hospitals and things like that, the social support mechanisms. Get the industrialists, get a board of industrialists to run it for all I care.
0: Okay, (laughs) this is too funny, this question. Should I move out of India by studying Mihir Sharma? In your words, I feel very insecure. (laughs) Yes, you should.
1: You should. Because at least abroad, you may lose your religion over the next hundred years. In India, you'll probably get slaughtered. Uh, What happened to PJP workers in Bengal is ultimately going to happen to you by the end of this century. Get the hell out.
0: Hmm. Okay. So this is a very interesting question. So so let me ask it. Which religion would you take on between Islam and Christianity in India (laughs) post-Hinduism? Uh, it w-
1: Well, I think I'd rather commit harakiri. <laughs> I may be an atheist. Do I identify as a Hindu? I will not touch either of these religions. Full stop. I'm very clear about this.
0: Mm, let me see if there are any... Uh, okay, this is... Okay, I we have answered this many times, but do you think freedom of speech and blasphemy keep Hinduism alive? I think the question is, does freedom of speech or does blasphemy keep Hinduism alive?
1: They uh, Hinduism, Hindus keep Hinduism alive. The strength of a religion is its people. When you look after your own people, that is what keeps it alive. Okay, it is not the freedom or the blasphemy that keep Hinduism alive.
0: You all invest right. one in last, human beings. One last question. I think I've covered all the relevant ones. Has Christianity killed more people than Hitler? Several times. Uh, why? Why is that a binary?
1: Hitler is part of the Christian kill count.
0: All right. So I need to, I think a lot of people, I need to explain this before we end this. A lot of people actually do not know that small temples are supported by the government. See, this is, this is the problem where people don't read government documents. So I'll give you an actual fund in India. So in Maharashtra, in Maharashtra, there is something called the Tirthak Fund. Now go and study what happens in Maharashtra. It is called Tirthak Fund. How much money was allocated during the BJP government's time. And how it was allocated, what it did to the small terms is this is my problem. Look, I'm actually reacting to the live stream right now because see, people give emotional arguments. I don't give emotional arguments, I give factual arguments. And I'm telling you, every state government has different schemes. Now, I am willing to concede that not every state government might have it, but Maharashtra does. And it it actually now. That fund is totally at the discretion of the state government. Now, the BJP government put money in the Tirthakshetra fund. Now, I don't know if the Mahavikas Aghadi is going to put money in the Tirthakshetra fund. That is a valid question that I'm willing to accept. But just to inform uh, everybody over here. There are such funds that are actually helping small temples because they just don't have that kind of a collection to sustain themselves in the current model. Because big temples still sustain themselves purely off of their daily collections. uh,
1: My going through of revenues seems to indicate that collections vastly outnumber the number of temples that need to be supported, number one. Number two, there is a hesitancy to give because nobody I I don't give to temples. I uh, slip it because, you know, a priest taking something from a uh, uh, this thing is liable to criminal uh, whatever. So I slip it in when people aren't looking. But as a rule, I never give to temples because I don't want that money going to the government, period. What you can do is you can do it as a tithe, like the way Germany does it. If you're an, uh, if you belong to the Protestant Church, there's a certain tithe that goes to the church from your uh, pay and things like that. You can do that. What's preventing you from doing it? In which case, you also get privileged access. So, for example, let's say the, um, cha- assume there's a Chanakipuri Durga Temple. Okay, if you are a devotee of the Chanakipuri Durga Temple, you have a tithe to the Chanakipuri Durga Temple. When you uh, 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 uh v- when your kid wants to go to school they get special privileged entry into the uh, uh Chanakya Puri uh, uh, Durga uh, temple school when you want to go to college you get a special uh, reserved entry into the Chanakyapuri Durga temple College tithe it see it's no, no point saying that you're Hindu when you're not going to give to your Temple I am an atheist, but I will still put money in the hands of priests. Because I need it. See, that temple is reassurance for me. It is the temple and Hinduism that ensure that I can be a gay atheist man in India. So, there are a lot of systems of dealing with this. Tithing is one of them. But understand, irrespective. If you're going to continue to be a backward economic shithole with slogans substituting for an economy and economic growth, if not now, if not in the next 100 years, you're going to get finished off in the next 500 years because you don't know what the dynamics then are going to be. Okay, so it is all based on continuing wealth. It's not enough to go pray to Lakshmi. Your economic policies are the most anti-Lakshmi policies. Every economic document that comes out from the government is a spit on the face of Lakshmi. It is a perversion. It is it, it is a Kabbalistic,
0: Satanistic worship of
1: uh Dardreshwari.
0: Okay, that was that that line was really interesting. Okay, you know what? I think we've covered as many questions as were possible because the questions are never-ending and a lot of them repeat and their statements. So so here's the thing, guys. So we will end today's discussion. Now, uh, I had many questions myself for Abhijit, but you know what? Uh If we started doing that, we would go on for one hour. Now I'll do this. And uh, this is because, like I said, I always want to make sure that Abhijit gets to speak the most. And then you guys get to ask Abhijit the most questions because this platform is always about the guest and the viewers. My, My views, I can always give my views later on. So I will respond to Abhijit in a monologue. And I will respond to again using my understanding of psychology, anthropology, sociology, and political uh, political uh, working over the years, and then maybe we can revisit it again uh, in some time. So we'll end today's discussion. And as always, Abhijit, sorry, one second, no monologue. Talk. We will have a discussion, just you and
1: me. Abhijit talks to <laughs> you. <laughs> you. You don't get a right to uh, uh, you don't get a right to rebut me without my right to rebuttal, no? I'm not doing another monologue we'll have a discussion
0: okay okay so uh, let's do this We are, because I disagree with Abhijit uh, see I'll tell you very honestly I agree with his historical facts that he has narrated I disagree with the conclusion now I'll share my views on why I disagree with the conclusion I, I agree with the fear I don't agree with the conclusion uh, I see but uh, and I know Abhijit Abhijit likes to present a doomsday scenario he may not even believe in a doomsday scenario but abhijit is like, tumko itna I, do. Dunga. <laughs> but, I do i do actually believe in this uh so so that's the thing so i will respond to abhijit but i will need a lot of time to build my argument show it in a historical way Show how religions behave, how memes evolve, how memes change, and it is very complex and it's going to take a lot of time. And if I would have done this, this would have freaking gone on for four hours, and Indian audiences are not ready for that. So we'll end it over here. So, Abhijit, Abhi as always, pleasure talking to you, buddy. I'll see you next time okay guys time to end today's discussion if you like the video please subscribe to the channel share the video like the video if you are scared leave your comments in <laughs> in the discussion uh, in uh, the, below the video and stating how scared you are after all listening to abhijit if you like what i'm doing over here become a member or become a subscriber on patreon or buy the chavok podcast merch or send your donations through upi follow abhijit on twitter and tell him how he is going he has made sure that you will not sleep tonight <laughs> and i'll see you guys next time until then, take care.
1: Be Bye. scared.